Well, it is good to be with you this morning. In case you're wondering why Kelly's not here, you may remember from last week, uh, he and Robin have traveled down south to uh, get Robin's mother, uh, Kelly's mother-in-law, and bring her back to Canada so that she can live with them for a while. Um, You might remember Robin's father passed away not too long ago, and her mother is uh, not in a position uh, health-wise to be able to live on her own. And so um, I don't usually see Kelly rattled. He's pretty cool cucumber most of the time and he's pretty rattled this week in every conversation I had because he really has no idea how this is going to go whether Robin's mom is going to be cooperative and trust them or not and so uh, I invite you to pray uh, with me right now I my mind certainly with them and I hope that we can lift our prayers on their behalf Uh, God we are mindful of Kelly and Robin as they have uh, already traveled uh, the states and as they have the challenging mission before them of helping move Robin's mother back here to Canada and I just pray father that your spirit would be in that place and would prevail with much peace and wisdom and whether or not Robin's mom can understand what's going on I pray father that she would feel the warmth and the love and would be able to trust Kelly and Robin um, that it would go smoothly and we pray that you would grant them an extra measure of your grace in the coming months as they and uh, Megan care for her. Please return them to us safely in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you miss everything else, and that's totally okay, I get this is prime nap time. If you miss everything else, I want you to know that you can't outsin God's grace. That you can't outdebt God's forgiveness. That there's no end to second chances with God. That's what I want you to know this morning. First and foremost, and from beginning to end, that's what I want you to know this morning. And that has enormous implications for our life. So there it is. Preachers don't usually start with what they want to end with, they usually build up to it. I give you the whole shebang right there. And quite frankly, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, is it not? Limitless forgiveness. Without bounds. Everything that we know has limits. Everything we know has limits. We live in a world of rules and of boundaries, of limitations. They give our lives structure, which is not a bad thing. They create a framework in which we can develop healthy and thriving communities. I think of sports. I think of how poorly sports would go without a few rules. If we weren't agreed as to whether we're supposed to handle the ball with our hands or with our feet, and whether or not uh, punching to the face was allowed or not, pick your sport. All of those things are applicable depending on the sport you're in. Is the ball out of bounds when it crosses the line entirely? Or just when it touches the line? Or is that out of bounds only when the player who's handling the ball touches the line or goes out of bounds? Uh, How hard can I challenge the other player before it constitutes a foul? How many chances do I get? Baseball makes this clear. Three strikes, you're out. How many chances do I get? It guides all the participants with a common framework so that we can have fun together. It tells us where the boundaries are and what the penalties are for transgressing them. But it extends far beyond sports and to the world of driving. (laughs) 
where on this wide stretch of pavement should I position my vehicle? Uh, in case you're wondering, it's between the lines. Pick a lane and stick to it. And just as importantly, how do I tell you that I want to change lanes? Uh, again, it's with a signal. Um, and if you transgress that boundary, you will get a horn as a consequence. When does the 30 kilometer an hour speed limit apply to playground or school zones? In case you're wondering, it's now 7.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. all across Calgary, so be warned. How far over the speed limit, this is my question, can I go before I get a ticket? Is it five kilometers an hour flat rate across the board, or is it a percentage? Is it 10%? And if so, is my speedometer in line? Not knowing that rule is going to net some losses in my bank account. And it extends beyond driving. There's rules all over the place. How about commerce? I know that there are such things as limited time offers. So when a puts up their sign for the spicy guacamole teen burger, it's not going to be around forever. And if I really want one, I better go in there and get it. Unless, of course, the sales go really well, in which case it'll probably come back again in a couple months' time. Limited time offer. There are limitations in terms of liability, companies and individuals. As I learn a little bit more about business, there's actually ways that you uh, can structure a business so that you're untouchable. Your company might go under, but you won't. And so there's these ways of creating multiple kind of lines of separation so that people can go to this line after you and no further. It's quite interesting to me. There's limitations. There's limitations on how much money I can borrow, and that's a good thing. And in this world of rules and of boundaries and of limitations that create a framework for healthy community, Peter's question to Jesus today about limits on forgiveness not only makes sense, it strikes us as a very necessary point to clear up. If forgiveness is going to be an important part of our community, well, how many times? When do I get to stop forgiving you? When is enough enough? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. As often happens with Jesus, he tells a story in response to a situation, or in this case, a question. He never just answers the question straight. That would have been far too easy. He actually tells a whole story and invites us into a different world. And so this morning, I invite you into a different world. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21 with Peter's question. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Uh, Sisters, you're not excluded, by the way. Brothers or sisters. Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, Jesus goes on, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, this sounds really familiar, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And I really wish Jesus would have just stopped there. It's a compelling story, but he's not done. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. Unless you forgive one another from the heart. In all fairness, I could probably stop right now and you wouldn't have missed the point. But since I have your attention, I'll talk for a little bit longer. Peter's question, in case you're thinking, that's pretty ungenerous, only seven times, seven chances, I don't know, that doesn't sound very gracious and forgiving. I mean, hadn't he been hanging around Jesus for a while? Seven is actually quite generous compared to the three that the rabbis gave you and taught people. Three times, you get three strikes against one another and then you don't have to forgive them anymore. And so seven is actually more than double the legal required limit, which is quite good in this case. Jesus' answer, however, is a shocking echo of an Old Testament text out of Genesis chapter 4, where there's this unmitigated, vindictive vengeance that Jesus answers with an unmitigated, limitless forgiveness. I just want you to hear this text out of Genesis. It's about a man named Lamech. And he's a little bit nasty. He says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Those are really familiar numbers. So here's a man saying, not seven times, but 77 times I will avenge transgressions against me. And here in Matthew 18, Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times shall you forgive your transgressors. Scholars debate, as they want to do, whether Jesus said 77 or 70 times seven times. And quite frankly, I think this one man named R.T. France is exactly on the money when he says to be concerned as to whether the figure is 77 or 490 is to return to the pedantic calculation which Jesus rejects, which is to say, I'm sorry, bean counters. He doesn't really mean 490. And he doesn't really mean 77. He means pick a number so astronomically high that by the time you get to the end of today and you're up to 212 because you just really have a chip on your shoulder, you forget tomorrow morning where you left off. Jesus isn't talking about 490 being the limit. The number is designed to break through the naive notion that there are limits to forgiveness. One is to keep on forgiving far beyond the point where one has lost count of the wrongs, Jesus says. So don't even start counting, because that's not the point. However, Jesus mentions a few things about money. And I don't know if you've done any international traveling, but I find every time I jump into another culture with a different currency, it takes me right up until about the end of my trip to wrap my mind around what things are worth. And even then, it's just a very minute understanding. And so usually I go like this. Well, here's how much I converted in my Canadian money. 
and this is going to cost me about 10% of that. Therefore, this, <laughs> it's a painful calculation. So I want us to hear what's going on in the story here because Jesus does mention some money. One denarius was an average day's wage. It was an average day's wage. 6,000 denarii equaled one talent. Okay? So we're thinking here. Now, the first sum that Jesus used was 10,000 talents. That's an astronomical sum. It doesn't matter how you slice it. This is a huge debt in cultural terms. When Herod's realm was divided among his sons in 4 BC and they were to collect taxes from this whole realm and that money was to be distributed among these four sons who were ruling over the realm, the entire amount of the taxes collected was 900 talents. This is the annual tribute. 900 talents to be distributed among the wealthiest and most powerful of the day. If you want to put this in terms of finances and a minimum wage... I used a round number of 10. So if you go $10 an hour times an eight-hour day, which is probably a little short compared to the slaves in the first century that would have been working 12, 14, and 16-hour days. So that gives you about $80 on the day. But remember, that's, that's one denarius, about 80 bucks, okay, on the day. 6,000 denarii is one talent. And so if you multiply that out, you get a much larger number. And if you multiply that again by 10,000, you end up with a debt of approximately $4.8 billion. In case you're so inclined or in a, just a different economic uh, kind of understanding where $4.8 billion doesn't sound like that much, you're like, oh, no, we could wipe that off by just kind of carry the zero and do something else in the stock market. I don't, I don't know how to you wipe out that kind of debt. Uh, but if you're like, oh, I could handle that, let me put it in different terms. In terms of hours worked, in terms of hours worked, this is roughly 60 million hours. Which, if you can't wrap your mind around that, is about 165,000 years worth of debt this man has accrued. One author says it was such an unimaginable size of debt, the person just linguistically, Matthew, as he wrote this, Jesus, as he spoke it, was a talent was the highest sum of money they could think of, the highest unit, and 10,000 was the highest number they could think of. And they're just trying to say, look, think through the roof on how much this guy owed. And so here's the surprise. Here's the surprise. It's not that astronomical amount of debt. Our own country, I imagine, has a sizable debt. Our neighbors to the south have an unimaginable size of debt. Seems to be just kind of the way the world works. Here's the surprise. It's the master's response of complete cancellation of the debt. It does not match the request. The servant said, just give me some more time and I will pay you back everything I owe you. He was lying through his teeth. He doesn't have 165,000 years left to pay off what he owed the master. He's just begging for a deferral of payment, a stay of execution, if you will. And the master in this ridiculously surprising turn says, I'm going to pass on that. It's canceled. It's wiped out. Go free. So here's the big surprise then. That was a surprise. But here's the big surprise. The servant's unmerciful response to his debtor. We would expect the story to go kind of like this. This is the way patterns work. A, B, A prime, B prime. So if A is like B, then A prime is like B prime. And so in the first case, we have servant with unimaginable amount of debt begs forgiveness. Master forgives the debt. 
We would expect that over here with A prime, little amount of money is owed. Servant forgives the little amount of debt. That would make sense, would it not? But we're caught totally off guard with this servant's response. Servant seeks him out, chokes him, has him sent to the jailers until he can pay his debt off. The slave, just to be fair, was well within his legal rights. He has done nothing legally wrong. Nowhere does the parable critique whether or not he's following the law. The only time that this becomes an abhorrent, abysmal response to the situation at hand is in the context of the astronomical debt that had been marvelously forgiven. There's a whole new world that's breaking in in this parable. It's a new and unfamiliar world of mercy and forgiveness. A world that grants to someone else what he or she has no legal right to either demand or expect. This world has broken in upon the familiar world that we know of rules and of boundaries, of limitations, of legal rights and legal claims. And it unmasks the brutality that underlies all attempts to secure legitimate rights and claims over and against another person. It is the rule and the reign of God that's breaking into the world. And in light of that rule that is going to last from now until forever, to not forgive a small debt in light of the huge debt we've been forgiven is gross. But we're not done with the surprises yet. There's an even bigger surprise (laughs) Did you catch Jesus? Jesus could have stopped at any point in the parable and I would have been okay. Master gets rid of a huge debt. I'm good with that. What a great story. That makes me feel pretty good. Servant doesn't doesn't repay that little debt. Okay, I get the point, Jesus. You want me to extend this to other people. It's this that is the biggest surprise of it all. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. When we're talking about the heart, we're talking about what's in the very center of your being. It's the core identity. It's it's what makes you, you. That's where forgiveness that runs deep has to come from. And so if the church is the community of the forgiven, then all of its relationships, all of them, need to be marked by a forgiveness which is not a mere form of words, but it's an essential characteristic. From your heart excludes all casuistry and legalism, which is to say there are no lines in the sand, there are no boundaries, there are no rules around limiting forgiveness, period. That is the kind of community that we live in. That is the parable that Jesus is speaking of. There are zero limits. And the minute that we start thinking, I don't have to forgive so-and-so because of this loophole, you've missed it. And you need to read verse 35 again. When forgiveness is the central theme, the core identity, the lines in the sand just don't matter anymore. Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant, even 2,000 years and many cultures removed, it's straightforward, it's to the point, you hear it, you get it. The challenge isn't so much in understanding what Jesus is saying, but in living out this profound teaching. I want to take one more look at money. Because the slave owed the other slave a hundred denarii. 
And so let's just recall a couple facts. One day's wages, one denarii. So 100 denarii, sorry, one denarius. 100 denarii, 100 days wages. If you're just going to go off a basic minimum wage calculation, again, I use 10 as a round number, that's $8,000. That's a third of your working year. That's no small sum. Jesus is not saying that forgiveness is easy. And he's not saying it's trivial. The sins that you have against one another are not small things. There are legitimate things in a community like this that lives closely together, that ministers together, that shares life together, that has meals together, that parents each other's kids, that loves each other, that weeps on each other. In this kind of community, you have huge sins against each other. They're not small. Jesus isn't dismissing them and saying, come on, it's so huge that you should just be able to brush anything that happens here aside. That's not it. But Jesus is still saying forgiveness is central. It's in the middle of this community in a way that no other value is in the middle of this community. That's what Jesus is saying. Disciples that are forgiven... Sorry, disciples are the forgiven who forgive. And as God's forgiveness is inexhaustible, so too must disciples cultivate their ability to renew their forgiveness of others again and again. I want to invite you to imagine a bigger forgiveness than maybe you could possibly imagine. I think that's one step in the right direction. A gentleman by the name of Shane Claiborne uh, mentioned a couple of stories that he's uh, written the last time that I preached. He's uh, against war in a big way because he really believes that the gospel is about peace. And so he spent some time in Iraq. And on one of these trips, he describes a worship service that they attended. He says, one unforgettable night was at St. Raphael's Cathedral in Baghdad where once again I was reminded of the God of extreme grace. We sang familiar tunes, and the priest got up to give the homily. It's just a fancy word for sermon. He had just served six months in prison for his faithfulness to the gospel. What could his message be at such a crucial moment? He told the true story of a woman whose son and husband were killed by a police officer. Eventually, they caught the police officer, dragged him before the court. In court, as the judge considered the sentence of the police officer, the woman spoke boldly. He took my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love left to give. And he needs to know what love and grace feels like. So I think he should have to come to visit my home in the slums twice a month, And spend time with me so that I can be a mother to him. So that I can embrace him. And he can know that my forgiveness is real. Can you imagine inviting the killer of your spouse and of your children into your home? Can you imagine embracing them because you have a lot of love left to give? (laughs) That's a big kind of forgiveness. This action is not based on logic. It is based on a love that does not make sense. It's a scandalous grace. That 
It's at the heart of this community. It's one thing to dream big and to have our minds and our hearts just kind of blown wide open with stories like this. It's another thing to talk about, so what's the next step for us? Well, soccer has uh, recently come to an end, at least in my life, for another four years, a.k.a. the World Cup is done. Uh, It's done for another year because my kids' soccer season is over. Uh, But I've come across this really great little parable uh, based mostly on true facts of a little soccer team, and I'd like to share it with you because I think it helps point us in the direction of where we go next. This man, like me, was a coach of a soccer team, and he writes this. We were the mighty Yellow Jackets, an eight-and-under girls team, and in our first few seasons would lose by double-digit scores that seem more like football scores, 21-3, to 17-0, to 28-4. The girls liked each other so much, and they had so much fun just being together, they hardly noticed the score. Even after a trouncing, they'd run up to me, jumping and smiling and giggling. Did we win? Did we win? They asked. Well, I'd say... We came in second. During one game, Alexi, a good-natured and slightly chubby girl, was playing fullback. That's a defensive position if you're not a footballer. In an unusual moment of inspired intensity, she stole the ball and dribbled, or perhaps chased is a better word, the ball up to midfield. Soon she was swarmed by three skinny players from the other team, and they instantly formed a knot of eight kicking feet, eight flaring elbows, and four swinging ponytails. In the middle of the scramble, Alexi spun around a couple of times, trying to keep the ball in her control, when she broke free. A little dizzy, surprised to have the ball still in her control, she saw something she had never seen before, a wide-open field between her and the goal. I saw her glance up at the goal and then down at her feet, and I detected a look on her face I had never seen. It was as if, for the first time in the sport, She knew exactly what to do. And all her resources were unified in a glorious moment of clarity, hope, and commitment. She, a fullback, was going to score. So she started dribbling. She had never dribbled so well. She drove forward, head down, fist clenched, deep in concentration, kick, kick, step, kick, step, step, kick. There was only one problem in the entire universe at that moment, a problem of which she was blissfully unaware. She's going the wrong way. I started yelling, turn around, turn around, Alexi. It's the wrong goal. She plunged forward. Then the parents started shouting too, wrong way, Alexi. It's the wrong goal. Turn around. She couldn't hear us. She was in another dimension of time and space. Her fellow defenders didn't want to steal the ball from their friend and teammates, so they backed away, confused. Kick, step, step, kick, pause. She neared the goal and looked up once more, oblivious to the shouting. Grim in her determination, pursing her lips. She was a fullback, a defender, and she had never been in scoring position before. Her latent inner athlete had come alive, and the thrill filled her with ecstasy. As her right foot cocked back in her backswing, the backswing of the most important kick of her entire eight-year-old life, somewhere in the inner regions of her brain, a tiny alarm went off. Why was her best friend and teammate Robin in the goal box? Why did Robin look so afraid? No, Alexi, no, Robin shouted, but it was too late. My husky little fullback was already in motion. The reflexes of her newly awakened inner athlete had clicked into motion and could not be stopped. As her right foot connected with the ball, you could see the agony of an awful recognition spread across her face. First, her expression, 
And then her crumbling body folded into a living parable of repentance as she collapsed to the dirt. Her heart sank as the ball rose and arced toward the net. Robin dove to her left, and at the last instant, the knuckles of her left fist grazed the ball so that it veered slightly to the right and down until it grazed the goalpost and dropped to the ground, rolling to a stop in a tuft of perfect green grass just outside the net. Robin had averted disaster for Alexi and for the Yellow Jackets. Her teammates, including Alexi, ran to her and tackled her in a joyful, shouting, screaming mass of relieved girlhood. Alexi's mistake was swallowed up in Robin's amazing save. We lost 9-0 that day, but at least we were spared the indignity of scoring more points on our own goal than on theirs. In a nutshell, this is the gospel. And I think you've had these moments When you look at your life and you realize that with all intensity, everything, the fervor of your body, every fiber of your being, you're going towards the goal and it's the wrong goal. And it's in those moments that we collapse and we are broken and we are humbled and we get repentance. Because once you've made that kind of mistake, it could happen again. If you know you're broken, you know you're broken. And I think that's one of the first steps to recognizing our place in this community of forgiveness. It's recognizing that at some point, I have been way out of line, I had no clue, and Jesus saved it. As the forgiveness from our God of lifetimes worth of debt, of shame, and of anger, of hatred and conniving and sinfulness, as God's forgiveness of all those things weighs heavily on us, as it looms larger and larger in our hearts, we begin, we begin to soften. And as we begin to soften, we take tentative steps in our own community toward those who have wronged us. To offer them forgiveness. To those who have, to those we have wronged, we ask their forgiveness. Peter's question and Jesus' response today reminds us that we are perpetually forgiven. There's not a moment in your life that you will outsin God's mercy. It is not possible for you to stack high enough indebtedness that will outlast God's forgiveness. And that truth, when it looms large in our lives and becomes the story of our life, it enables us to forgive all kinds of unimaginable sins against us. Disciples are the forgiven who forgive. And as God's forgiveness is inexhaustible, so too must disciples cultivate their ability to renew their forgiveness of others again and again. I invite you to take a minute in silence and respond to what God is doing in you.